bad enough for the gallows and yet too bad to live among their virtuous countrymen at home. While other founding fathers were reared in tidy New England villages or cosseted on baronial Virginia estates, Hamilton grew up in a tropical hellhole of dissipated whites and fractious slaves, all framed by a backdrop of luxuriant natural beauty. On both his maternal and paternal sides, Hamilton's family clung to the insecure middle rung of West Indian life, squeezed between plantation aristocrats above and street rabble and unruly slaves below. Taunted as a bastard throughout his life, Hamilton was understandably reluctant to chat about his childhood. My birth is the subject of the most humiliating criticism, he wrote in one pained confession. And he turned his early family history into a taboo topic alluded to in only a couple of cryptic letters. He described his maternal grandfather, the physician John Fawcett, as a French Huguenot who emigrated to the West Indies in consequence of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and settled in the island of Nevis and there acquired a pretty fortune. Revoked in 1685 by Louis XIV, the Edict of Nantes had guaranteed religious toleration for French Protestants. I have been assured by persons who knew him that he was a man of letters and much of a gentleman. Born ten years after his grandfather's death, Hamilton may have embellished the sketch with a touch of gentility. In the slave-based economy, physicians often attended the auctions, checking the teeth of the human chattel and making them run, leap, and jump to test whatever strength remained after the grueling middle passage. No white in the Sugar Islands was entirely exempt from the pervasive taint of slavery. The archives of St. George's Parish in the fertile mountainous Gingerland section of Nevis record the marriage of John Fawcett to a British woman, Mary Uppington, on August 21, 1718. By that point they already had two children, a daughter Anne and a son John, the latter arriving two months before the wedding. In all likelihood, lulled by the casual mores of the tropics, the Fawcett's decided to formalize their link after the birth of their second child, having lived until then as a common-law couple, an expedient adopted by Hamilton's own parents. In all, the Fawcett's produced seven children, Hamilton's mother, Rachel, being the second youngest, born circa 1729. A persistent mythology in the Caribbean asserts that Rachel was partly black, making Alexander Hamilton a quadroon or an octoroon. In this obsessively race-conscious society, however, Rachel was invariably listed among the whites on local tax rolls. Her identification as someone of mixed race has no basis in verifiable fact. The folklore that Hamilton was mulatto probably arose from the incontestable truth that many, if not most, illegitimate children in the West Indies bore mixed blood. At the time of Rachel's birth, the 4,000 slaves on Nevis outnumbered whites by a ratio of four to one, making inequitable carnal relations between black slaves and white masters a dreadful commonplace. Evidence indicates that the Fawcett marriage was marred by perpetual squabbling perhaps compounded by the back-to-back -back deaths of two of their children in 1736, and the blight that parched the island the next year. Mary Fawcett was a pretty, socially ambitious woman, and probably not content to dawdle on a stagnant island. Determined and resourceful, with a clear knack for cultivating powerful men, 
she appealed to the Chancellor of the Leeward Islands for a legal separation from her husband. In the 1740 settlement, the Fawcett's agreed to live separately and apart for the rest of their lives, and Mary renounced all rights to her husband's property in exchange for an inadequate annuity of fifty-three pounds. It is possible that she and Rachel traversed the narrow two-mile strait to St. Kitts, where they may even have first encountered a young Scottish nobleman named James Hamilton. Because her mother had surrendered all claims to John Fawcett's money, sixteen-year-old Rachel Fawcett achieved the sudden glow of a minor heiress in 1745 when her father died and left her all his property. Since Rachel was bright, beautiful, and strong-willed, traits we can deduce from subsequent events, she must have been hotly pursued in a world chronically deficient in well-heeled, educated European women. Rachel and her mother decided to start anew on St. Croix, where her much older sister Anne and her husband James Lytton had prospered, building a substantial estate outside the capital, Christianstead, called the Grange. The Lyttons likely introduced them to another newcomer from Nevis, a Dane named Johann Michael Levine, who had peddled household goods and now aspired to planter status. The name Levine, L-A-V-I-E-N, can be a Sephardic variant of L-E-V-I-N-E, but if he was Jewish, he managed to conceal his origins. Had he presented himself as a Jew, the snobbish Mary Fawcett would certainly have squelched the match in a world that frowned on religious, no less than interracial, marriage. From fragmentary evidence, Levine emerges as a man who dreamed of plucking sudden riches from the New World, but stumbled, like others, into multiple disappointments. The year before he met Rachel, he squandered much of his paltry capital on a minor St. Croix sugar plantation. On this island of grand estates, a profitable operation required fifty to one hundred slaves, something beyond the reveries of the thinly capitalized Levine. He then lowered his sights appreciably and, trying to become a planter on the cheap, acquired a fifty percent stake in a small cotton plantation. He ended up deeply in hock to the Danish West India and Guinea Company. Beyond her apparent physical allure, Rachel Fawcett must have represented a fresh source of ready cash for Levine. For Alexander Hamilton, Johann Michael Levine was the certified ogre of his family saga. He ruled the day that his grandmother auctioned her daughter off, as it were, to the highest bidder. In compliance with the wishes of her mother, but against her own inclination, Hamilton stated, the sixteen-year-old Rachel agreed to marry the older Levine, her senior by at least a dozen years. In Hamilton's blunt estimation, it was a hated marriage, as the daughter of one unhappy union was rushed straight into another. In 1745, the ill-fated wedding took place at the Grange. The newlyweds set up house on their own modest plantation, which was named, with macabre irony, Contentment. The following year, the teenage bride gave birth to a son, Peter, destined to be her one legitimate child. One wonders if Rachel ever submitted to further conjugal relations with Levine. Even if Levine was not the coarse man of repulsive personality evoked by Hamilton's grandson, it seems clear that Rachel felt stifled by her older husband, finding him crude and insufferable. In 1748, Levine bought a half-share in another small sugar plantation, enlarging his debt and frittering away Rachel's fast, dwindling inheritance. 
The marriage deteriorated to the point where the headstrong wife simply abandoned the house around 1750. A vindictive Levine ranted in a subsequent divorce decree that while Rachel had lived with him, she had committed such errors which as between husband and wife were indecent and very suspicious. In his severe judgment, she was shameless, coarse, and ungodly. Enraged, his pride bruised, Levine was determined to humiliate his unruly bride. Seizing on a Danish law that allowed a husband to jail his wife if she was twice found guilty of adultery and no longer resided with him, he had Rachel clapped into the dreaded Christiansvern, the Christiansted fort, which did double duty as the town jail. Rachel has sometimes been portrayed as a prostitute. One of Hamilton's journalistic nemeses branded him the son of a camp girl. But such insinuations are absurd. On the other hand, that Levine broadcast his accusations against her and met no outright refutation suggests that Rachel had indeed flouted social convention and found solace in the arms of other men. Perched on the edge of Gallows Bay, Christiansvern Fort had cannon that could be trained on pirates or enemy ships crossing the Coral Reef, as well as smaller artillery that could be swiveled landward and used to suppress slave insurrections. In this ghastly place, unspeakable punishments were meted out to rebellious blacks who had committed heinous crimes, striking whites, torching cane fields, or dashing off to freedom. They could be whipped, branded, and castrated, shackled with heavy leg irons, and entombed in filthy dungeons. The remaining cells tended to be populated by town drunks, petty thieves, and the other dregs of white society. It seems that no woman other than Rachel Levine was ever imprisoned there for adultery. Rachel spent several months in a dank, cramped cell that measured 10 by 13 feet.